Well, welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Jim Tisdale. I'm a professor in the College of Pharmacy at Purdue University and an adjunct professor in the School of Medicine at Indiana University. And I also serve as one of the scientific editors for pharmacotherapy. Today we are talking with Dr. Stormy Gale about her paper entitled Antihyperglycemic Medications and Impact on Cardiovascular Outcomes, a Review of Current Evidence. Dr. Gale is an assistant professor at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy and a member of the Applied Therapeutics Research and Instruction at the University of Maryland Collaborative, also known as Atrium. Atrium focuses on the advancement of care provided to patients with cardiovascular disease. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gale. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Tisdale. This topic has really generated a lot of interest over the past several years, and my co-authors, who I do want to recognize, Dr. Kristen Watson, who's also from the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy, and Dr. Jeannie Poon from Novant Health Presbyterian Medical Center. The three of us really enjoyed delving into the recent literature, so I'm excited to be here to discuss our work. Well, thank you for being here. Um, Dr. Gale, in the introduction to your article, you indicate that in 2008, the FDA mandated assessments of cardiovascular safety of antihyperglycemic agents. What event or events led to that mandate? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I do think that, first of all, it's important to recognize that cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of morbidity and mortality in patients with diabetes. And the annual economic costs of diabetes are expected to reach something like $500 billion by the year 2030. So preventing macrovascular events is an important therapeutic goal when caring for that patient population. And that being said, we certainly wouldn't want to use medications that would further increase that risk. So before the mandate, uh, antihyperglycemics actually were approved primarily based on A1C lowering alone, and many of the trials actually excluded patients that had a history of cardiovascular disease. So getting back to your question, the mandate itself was sparked by a meta-analysis of rosiglitazone that found that that medication significantly increased the risk of myocardial infarction and also increased cardiovascular death with borderline significance. That publication created a lot of controversy in Washington, and in July 2008, the FDA mandated the long-term cardiovascular safety trials for all new antihyperglycemics. And then later that year, the FDA released more specific guidance on how those medications should be evaluated. I see. You indicate in your article that after a period of time, the effect of insulin on hemoglobin A1C diminishes to the point of being essentially lost but yet beneficial outcomes associated with insulin therapy persist. You refer to this as a glycemic legacy effect. Could you explain what this is and why it occurs? Definitely. So the whole idea behind the glycemic legacy effect is this concept that even though you may only control a patient's blood glucose for a finite period, the benefits of that control might extend beyond that. So I'll use the UKPDS trial as an example. Just as a quick summary, uh, that study randomized patients to either intense glucose control or conventional control and found that intense control did reduce microvascular events, but not macrovascular events. But what's especially interesting is the 10-year results of follow-up after the trial ended. So the results demonstrated that within one year after the conclusion of the study, there was no longer differences in hemoglobin A1C between the two different groups. But despite that, there was a persistent benefit in microvascular events in the intensive group, 
which also resulted in a reduction in both myocardial infarction and all-cause mortality, which again wasn't seen in that original trial. So the mechanism for the glycemic legacy effect isn't well understood. Uh, One suggested mechanism is that the early prevention of renal dysfunction could avoid translation into cardiovascular disease over time. And then one of the more popular hypothesized mechanism is this idea that fewer glycation end products would be formed over time with better glucose control. And these end products have been suggested to promote detrimental cardiovascular effects. So things like vascular stiffness, oxidative stress, and pro-inflammatory cytokines. So that being said, preventing the formation of those end products through glycemic control would support cardiovascular production. It's really an interesting concept that the benefit of certain therapies or overall disease state management could extend beyond the therapeutic period itself. And it just really emphasizes to us the importance of early glycemic control in patients with diabetes. Which antihyperglycemic medications are associated with the greatest protective effects against cardiovascular disease? Yeah, so uh, first of all, even though I know that much of the buzz on this topic is really surrounding the newer antihyperglycemic agents, metformin does remain the first-line therapy, and it really should be utilized in all patients whenever possible. Uh, Metformin has not only been shown to reduce the risk of myocardial infarction and mortality, but it is also the least expensive by far of any of the agents that have shown benefits in cardiovascular disease. In terms of the newer agents, uh, liraglutide, which is a GLP-1 agonist, was shown to reduce cardiovascular death, non-fatal myocardial infarction, and non-fatal stroke in the LEADER trial. It also showed a reduction in all-cause death, but that was driven primarily by a reduction in cardiovascular death. One thing to keep in mind is that the cardiovascular benefits that were seen with loraglutide is not necessarily a class effect because these benefits did not translate in other GLP-1 agonist cardiovascular outcome trials. But what does appear to be a class effect so far are the benefits seen with SGLT2 inhibitors. So both empagliflozin and canagliflozin reduced major adverse cardiac events in the EMPA-REG outcome and CANVAS trials. And also, the SGLT2 inhibitors appeared to reduce the risk of heart failure hospitalization, which is especially exciting considering that that hasn't been demonstrated yet with any other class. Uh, Also, the use of SGLT2 inhibitors have been shown to improve outcomes in uh, international real-world analyses, where they still found a reduction in heart failure hospitalization and death in patients who received the SGLT2 inhibitor compared to other antihyperglycemic agents. Uh, One other trial was the IRIS trial, which demonstrated a reduction in fatal or non-fatal stroke with pioglitazone in patients with recent stroke or TIA and insulin resistance. Uh, But I will say that because of the risk of heart failure that's associated with pioglitazone, overall, the greatest benefits would probably go to metformin, liraglutide, and SGLT2 inhibitors. And that's also reflected in the most recent ADA standards of care, which recommend metformin as first-line therapy, followed by liraglutide, empagliflozin, or canagliflozin in patients with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Well, that's a great summary. Thank you for that. And you just mentioned um, the potential for the development of heart failure. The thiazolidinediones, pioglitazone and rosaglitazone, both have black box warnings regarding the potential development of heart failure. Are the thiazolidinediones contraindicated in patients who have risk factors for heart failure, or are they contraindicated in patients who already have heart failure? 
Yeah, so in the United States, uh, TZDs are only contraindicated for initiation in patients with New York Heart Association class three or four symptoms. So really just our patients with established and generally more symptomatic heart failure. So technically, it's uh, not contraindicated to initiate a TZD in patients with established heart failure, but uh, as long as they have no or minimal symptoms, this should be done at a low dose and with close monitoring for weight gain or edema. Interestingly, this is different from Canadian labeling, which actually contraindicates the initiation of TZDs in all heart failure patients, regardless of their New York Heart Association class. So Personally, I tend to agree more with this interpretation, and in my practice, I avoid the classify can in all patients with heart failure. Um, I'm just of the opinion that there are plenty of antihyperglycemic medication options available, and that for our heart failure patients, one could be selected that not only doesn't carry such a risk, but potentially has a benefit because, like I said, SGLT2 inhibitors would. Uh, maybe be preferred in heart failure patients due to that association with reduced heart failure admissions. So if a patient uh, is taking a TZD and then develops heart failure, should the drug be discontinued? Yeah, that's a good question. So technically, the box warning uh, specifically suggests that if a patient uh, does develop heart failure, you could either reduce the dose or discontinue the medication. Um, in my own personal practice, I would favor discontinuing the medication if uh, heart failure develops. And do we know the mechanism by which the TZDs cause or exacerbate heart failure? So the heart failure that is uh, exacerbated or prompted by TZDs is most likely related to that TZD-induced fluid retention uh, rather than a direct cardiotoxicity. And interestingly, some studies actually have shown cardioprotective effects uh, with the class. So the exact mechanism for fluid retention isn't fully understood, and it's likely caused by multiple different mechanisms uh, that include a reduction in renal sodium excretion that results from both sodium and water retention. Uh, and like I said, there are many different causes. So edema may also be secondary to TZD-induced vasodilation, increased sympathetic nervous system activity, or alterations in endothelial permeability, for example. I see. Like the TZDs, the dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors may also increase the risk of heart failure. What is the mechanism underlying heart failure with those drugs? Unfortunately, that's an even less well understood question, but um, it is interesting as the mechanism for increased risk of heart failure appears on the surface to be different from the TZDs, considering that there is no sign of fluid retention with saxagliptin in early studies. Uh, but I will say that there was a recent study with the DPP4 inhibitor vildagliptin that demonstrated an increase in left ventricular and diastolic volume, which suggests that increases in volume could be playing a role. Uh, there's also a few studies that suggest that the class may cause biochemical changes that worsen endothelial function, possibly promoting cardiac fibrosis and stimulating the sympathetic nervous system, which results in damaged cardiac structure and function. So. As of now, a lot of this is speculation, and it really remains unclear what the underlying etiology of the adverse effect is. But similar to the TZDs, are the dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors contraindicated in patients who have heart failure? And if a patient's taking one of those drugs and they develop heart failure, should the drug be discontinued? 
Good question. So DPP-4 inhibitors are not currently contraindicated in patients with heart failure, but should certainly be used with caution in patients that have a history of heart failure or in those that are at risk for heart failure, including patients with renal dysfunction who did appear to be at greater risk for this adverse effect in SABR-TIMI-53. But it's also important to consider that the heart failure-related risks are not necessarily a class effect. So saxagliptin was associated with an increased risk in SAVER-TIMI-53, but this was not seen with citagliptin in the TICOS trial. And although a patient without underlying heart failure might seem like an ideal choice for one of the agents, the post hoc analysis of the examined trial found that it was patients without baseline heart failure who were the ones that demonstrated increased risk of developing heart failure with allagliptin. So considering all that, it might be reasonable to select citagliptin over other agents in the class if a DPP-4 inhibitor is uh, considered necessary. But I think regardless, uh, close monitoring is really imperative and discontinuation should be considered in a patient who develops heart failure after initiating a DPP-4 inhibitor. Again, I think it's a situation where in my opinion, when there are available options that don't carry such a risk, they should be explored whenever possible. Uh, is heart failure induced by the TZDs and the DPP-4 inhibitors reversible upon, upon discontinuation of therapy, or is there permanent myocardial damage and irreversible chronic heart failure after stopping therapy? So studies have shown that, uh, fortunately, because fluid retention appears to be the most likely causative mechanism of heart failure with TZD therapy, that it's mostly reversible with discontinuation and proper management. I guess indirectly, one could argue that if long-term fluid retention was not appropriately managed, hormonal changes and resultant remodeling could lead to a more irreversible damage. I think uh, because the mechanism for DPP-4 inhibitor-induced heart failure is even less clear, we can't really answer that question yet, and it's certainly an area where more long-term research would be needed. It, it seems that the influence of the glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonists on cardiovascular outcomes is variable among the drugs in this class, as you mentioned before. Why would liraglutide exert beneficial effects on cardiovascular outcomes while the other drugs in this class appear to have minimal influence on cardiovascular outcomes? Yep, that's another good question. So it's not totally clear if the differences in cardiovascular risk reduction between the studies are a result of the differences in the efficacy within the class itself, or more so because of differences in the designs of the trials. So uh, for example, the Excel trial included an increased utilization of SGLT2 inhibitors, which could certainly confound the results in terms of cardiovascular outcomes, considering what we know about their benefits in cardiovascular disease. Um, and then also with any study, you know, differences in the population included and the duration of follow-up could really affect the results. So the LEADER trial enrolled a patient population that had a higher baseline hemoglobin A1C, and they had a longer duration of follow-up compared to Excel with less discontinuation of the study drug. So I think it's still unclear. What are the effects of the sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors on cardiovascular outcomes? Yeah, I think this uh, class is really exciting. So uh, both empagliflozin and canagliflozin reduced major adverse cardiac events in the EMPA-REG outcome and CANVAS trials. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, the SGLT2 inhibitors do also appear to reduce the risk of heart failure hospitalization, and that, again, hasn't been demonstrated in any other class. Uh, 
What is also interesting is that the benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors are also seen earlier on with therapy. So within the first three months of therapy compared to, say, your GLP-1 agonists, which are delayed to about one year after therapy. I think the class is particularly exciting also because of the real-world outcome studies that have demonstrated the same benefits as well. Well, the full article is published in the July issue of Pharmacotherapy. Uh, But Dr. Gale, thank you for sharing this additional insight with us today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another ACCP podcast episode. Our theme music is called Rocket Power and is licensed by Creative Commons. Please take a moment to recommend this podcast and subscribe via iTunes so that you'll get notified of when our next episode will be released.